Well, good morning. I want you to think about two things that you don't think mix very well together. Like oil and water, they don't mix well together. Like they physically can't, the way they're made, mix together even if you tried. I don't know if you're watching the news a lot, but elections are upon us. Democrats and Republicans don't seem to always mix well together. Or if you're in the world of sports, Cubs in the World Series used to not mix well together. <laughs> or Bears and good, healthy quarterbacks. More seriously, though, some people think science and religion or science and the Bible, they don't mix well together. Doctrines of God's sovereignty and human responsibility or the free will of man, as it's sometimes called, can you think of two things that don't mix well together? All kinds of things we could probably think of. In the English language, we call these contradictions a paradox or an antinomy. Antinomy is the word anti-namas, which means anti-law, two laws that contradict one another. Throughout today's message, as we look at Genesis chapter 2 on page 2 of the Black Bibles around you, we're going to be considered considering what I would say are apparent contradictions. What Bible scholars or normal Bible readers, they look at these passages and they say they don't fit. But I'm going to call them apparent contradictions. We're going to look at them one at a time. Three apparent contradictions that seem like they might be a paradox or an antinomy. So the first, is there a contradiction with the Bible? The way that it's written, does the language of the Bible contradict itself? I want to compare Genesis chapter 1 with Genesis chapter 2. I want us to ask the question, what is the relationship between these two sections of Scripture? And what some have seen is a contradiction. Starting in verse 4, if you have these black Bibles around you, you'll notice that verse 4 is indented. Do you see that in the Bible? That's, that's an editorial translators work to try and help you see something different about to happen starting with verse 4. So that should alert your attention. It's not necessarily because it's poetic, even though there is what I think a chiastic structure, as we've talked about in the past, the first part of the sentence matches up with the last. So, so notice in verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created and the day that the Lord God made. And then notice he doesn't say heavens and earth but earth and heaven, so it's repeated backwards. They parallel each other like a mirror, the way this sentence. And so right in the middle is the creation by the Lord God. So verse 4 sticks out. You see that just naturally as you read it? But what also sticks out, for those of you that have been coming for the last few weeks, is that this repetition flow of days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 suddenly ceases, and we get what seems to be more of just a story form narrative. Furthermore, if you keep reading Genesis, and you don't just stop here, you notice that there are units with verse 4 language repeated all throughout Genesis. In fact, there are 11 of them. So look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, and notice the beginning phrase. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. So I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew real quick. When it says generations, it's the word toledot. And so you could say these are the toledots of heaven and earth. Now, turn your Bible to chapter 5, verse 1. 
And it says, this is the book of the Toledot of Adam. When God created man, he made him in his likeness of God. Male and female, he created him, and he blessed them, and he named them man, and they were created. Notice chapter 6, verse 9. These are the Toledots of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And I could keep going ten more eight more times that Genesis, most people think, is broken into these important sections. So what this means is that chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, is some sort of separate section that is apart from these Toledotes. Also, this word Toledote means history or story, or it could also mean literally genealogies. That's why some translations have it that way. But look at verse 4 again in chapter 2. These are the genealogies of the heaven and the earth. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? Since when does the heaven and earth have a genealogy? So the point I'm trying to show you is that in the structure of Genesis, a very clear structure, an obvious structure that seems that there's not too much disagreement upon other people that study and research the Bible, and they see that there's these clear marks, the Toledotes passages, and that there's these key little section breaks. So the question I ask is, which creation account should we go with? The chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through that section of the Toledot to chapter 5? Or should we stick with chapter 1? And what if it seems like they contradict? So let's read verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. So first, what we see in the generations, the story of creation of the heavens and the earth, when God created it, we see verse 5 and 6 describe There's no bush in the field. There's no small plant. There's no rain on the land. There's no man that's going to work the ground. But there is this mist, this watery substance coming up from the land. Some people think that this could be like dew. I don't think that's actually what it's saying in the research I've done. It could be actually that it's talking about the lack of rain coming down and the too much of water coming up and causing floods in the Middle Eastern area. So it's either not enough water or too much water, not anything good. That's the best way to summarize that. But notice, that then is followed by verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man out of dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So we go from this strange, no inhabitable space, uninhabitable space, to man being made out of the dust. And then what's the next verse say? And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. If you're trying to read Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 as a very scientific ordering of how things were done, then you have a contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 2 just now. Because chapter 2 just said that there was really nothing going on that was good, then God made man, and then he made a garden. 
It seems when you read chapter 1, the order is that there was nothing that was good. It was formless and void. Look at chapter 1, verse 2. You can see this same description. The earth was without form and without void, and darkness was over the face of the water. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then we see this coming forth of light, and then we see the sky in the next part of the day, on the second day, and then on the third day, then you start seeing land come up, and then eventually you get to day six, and then you see people. Hmm, what do we do with this? Well, one thing we've already talked about is we don't read the Bible like 21st century modern scientists. That's not who received this Bible. That's not who first these people were writing to. They weren't trying to answer the questions you and I have about the specific ordering of our scientific worldviews. So that's one thing you should keep in mind. Another thing that you should keep in mind is that potentially what's happening here is like your right and your left headphone. You guys ever have headphones you put on? Your earbuds or maybe stereo system, you have surround sound, and that one stereo emits a certain kind of sound, and another stereo emits another sound. But then when you put them together, it gives you the fullness of the sound instead of just listening to the one side. Could it be that potentially what's happening here is chapter 1 and chapter 2 actually have more of a paralleling rather than a contradictory account? Then when you put them next to each other, you see a different angle or picture. So think of it like maybe a 3D photograph, that if he just gives you one account, then it's just flat and 2D. But if he gives you another one, now there's dimensions. You see, oh, I can see more fully what God is doing here. So when I read verses 5 and 6, it seems to me that they correspond very nicely with verse 2 of Genesis chapter 1. That the earth was without form and void and darkness over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Uninhabited desert land. If you remember earlier in our series, we've talked about how verse 2 of chapter 1 is the word tohu vavohu, without form, without void. That literally means a desert wasteland. Now, right now, it might seem like, okay, where's the payoff for all of this information? And it's coming. So please stick with this. This is going to be like, whoa, this is good. It's not time to fall asleep yet. Could it be that in Genesis 2, it's telling us the same kind of idea in verse 5 and 6, that there's this uninhabited land, but then God makes man and he makes the garden. It doesn't matter which order it's in. It's just giving you a different accounting of this uninhabitable desert-like space that God makes a wonderful, beautiful, ordered, blessed space. Now, ask yourself this very important question, a simple one, but an important one. Who's the author of Genesis? Tradition, and even the books of Moses itself, say Moses. That's why they're called the books of Moses. So Moses, who was Moses writing to? Israelites. Where were the Israelites when they received this book of Moses? A desert uninhabitable space after they've seen thousands upon thousands of their family members die in an act of judgment where God said, you did not trust me to go into the land of promise, so for 40 years you will wander around in a desert, uninhabitable space where the rain does not fall down frequently enough. Or space where maybe the water comes up too much and it floods and there's just no living plants or shrubs. Do you see the picture? 
If you take Genesis all by itself and you just try and figure it out like a little science textbook, you'll get frustrated. Ah, there's a contradiction. Or if you read this book like it was meant to be read in a collection of four other books and you realize that these stories are not just introducing to us the creation of the world, although it is doing that, it's introducing to us to the creator God who makes a covenant with his people. And this God is explaining that I bring people out of the desert. I bring life out of no life. That would be encouraging, wouldn't it? If you've been wandering around your entire existence, the people reading Genesis 1 and 2 and hearing it for the first time have only known desert. I'm the God who takes desert and brings blessed, beautiful, wonderful, ordered creation. I bring not just wonderful creation, I bring paradise. Chapter 2, look down in verse 8 and 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. Eden literally means paradise, a delight. Look at verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. And, And what are these trees? They're very pleasant trees, pleasant to the sight, and they were good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now notice verse 10 and following. Now a river flowed out of Eden, so the river has life through it. Not crazy amounts of water or not too less amounts of water. Verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon. It was the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold That's a good place to be. Anybody want to be in a land where there's rivers running through it and there's lots of gold? Verse 12, and the gold of the land is good gold. And then there's also these beautiful stones of Bedulam and Onyx that are there. Verse 13, and the name of the second river is Gihon, and it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of the Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. So again, if we read this modernly, if we read this scientifically, if we read this historically, many people are going to start asking, now where in fact is the garden that is in Eden? Because it tells us that there's these rivers, and we know the Euphrates is a river that we still acknowledge today, and the Tigris, but what about these other rivers? And I don't know where they are, and this is just mythical, and I think one of the things you need to realize is that if this is an introduction, not just to the creation of the world, but the introduction to the land of promise, The promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where there's rich nutrients to eat and be blessed by, a land with gold. If if that's the idea, then maybe some of even these rivers have more to do with the idea that the Euphrates River is also one of the rivers talked about as the border of the promised land later in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Could it be then that We have here an explanation of the first promised land. So turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created, and then all of our English translations that we're used to hearing is the heavens and the earth. But did you remember a few weeks ago I said literally these words are, he created the sky and the land. Now when you put those two things together, And you say, look, you've made everything we can see up above us and everything that's down below us. And when you put the two phrases together all through the Old Testament Bible, it's saying that he made everything. And that's what Genesis 1 verse 1 seems to indicate. 
But when you keep reading Genesis chapter 1, he doesn't keep saying heaven and earth together. He just uses the phrase eretz, that's the word for land, or earth. So drop your eyes down to the first time you see this in verse 9. Look at verse 9. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth. But that's the word eretz. That's the word that's used throughout the Old Testament to talk about the promised eretz, the promised land. So if you're reading this in English, it probably doesn't sound so good to say, and God called the dry land land. You'd be like, well, that was clever. (laughs) But if you're reading this in its original language and you realize that all through these five books, God is talking about leading a people out of a desert and into a wonderful land. And right from the beginning, you see that he takes formlessness and darkness and void, uninhabitable space, and he brings life out of it. Do you think they'd get the message? Are you getting the message? Are you getting the cash value here? This is why you should be paying attention. The God of the Bible is the God who takes darkness and brings light. He's the one who takes death and he brings life. He's the one in Ezekiel 37 that we had read for us at the beginning of this service, in the valley of dry bones, where the bones were dry. What does that mean? They've been dead for a long time dry bones, and he speaks, and he breathes, and he brings life to these dry bones, and flesh gets put on these bones. And all of that is a metaphorical picture of the deadness of Israel and how God resurrects deadness to bring life. Anyone here thinking that it would be helpful to have a God who brings light into darkness, maybe the darkness in your life? Or life out of death? Anyone look in their life and see death, like literal death? Is there hope beyond the grave? How about spiritual death? Do you ever feel darkness and death in your own life? Right from the start of the Bible, we see that this God is the God who brings just that. Out of deserts, out of uninhabited space, beautiful, wonderful land. I want us to start seeing in the start of this study of Genesis that there are huge themes that are being introduced. So I've just talked about the first one, the promised land. If you read back through chapter 1 again, you'll notice that there's this huge theme of God blessing the animals, and He's blessing the people, and He's blessing the day. And if you keep following through Genesis and the rest of the Pentateuch, you'll see that this idea of blessing is a central theme to all five books of Moses. And God called Abraham out of his land and brought him to another land, a promise of another land. And he blessed Abraham and he said that through you, I'm going to bless all the nations. So when you get to one of the most important chapters in the book of Genesis, you're only going to basically see a repetition of the themes that have already been communicated in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. The God who blesses and brings his people into the promised land. And we could go on with the theme of seed and covenant, but we will save that for other weeks. I hope you're starting to get the idea. Read Genesis 1 and 2, not as a contradiction, but as a beautiful paralleling account to help you understand that the God 
who brought these people out of Egypt did not let them die in a desert. He brings them to the beauty and goodness of the land that he promised them. So trust in this God. Which brings us to our second question and contradiction. Is there a contradiction in God himself? Turn back to chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to read most of the words in English and separate the one word in Hebrew so you can hear what it sounds like. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the face of the waters. And Elohim said, let there be light. And there was light. And Elohim saw that the light was good, and Elohim separated the light from the darkness. Elohim called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Are you seeing it so far? Chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Yahweh Elohim made the earth and the heavens. Anyone already starting to wonder something? Hey, what happened to just Elohim? Who's this Yahweh guy? And what's that about? What does that even mean? Let's keep reading. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Yahweh Elohim had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Yahweh Elohim formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Yahweh Elohim planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life that was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge that was of good and evil. It's not just once. It wasn't just verse 4, that verse that's kind of sticking out, showing, hey, there's a transition here. The first of several Toledotes, this entire section of chapter 2, 3, and 4, you'll see Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Elohim. Now read the rest of the books of Moses and you will not find Yahweh Elohim like this. This sticks out not just from chapter one, it sticks out from all the books of Moses. Furthermore, there's a place in chapter three where it doesn't say Yahweh Elohim. Look down at chapter three real quick. Verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Yahweh Elohim had made. He said to the woman, did Elohim actually say? Verse 3, but Elohim said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither you shall touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for Elohim knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like Elohim, knowing good and evil. The only place in this first Toledot section where God's not talked about as Yahweh Elohim is when Satan's talking about God, the serpent. So what does this have to do with anything? Fun little Bible lesson, Pastor Phil. Thanks for that one. Do you see the paralleling accounts now? Another evidence of how 
Chapter 1 is telling you one side of the story. Chapter 2 is telling you another side of the story. So in chapter 1, he is the Elohim, which is just a general word for God or even king. And chapter 1 is talked about like the God king who when he speaks, now when a king speaks and he says something, what are you supposed to do? You go do it. Obey. When this Elohim, this kingly picture of God who's in charge of everything, the bigness, the grandeur, the majesty of this Elohim. When he speaks, what happens? Everything obeys, and it was so, and it was so, and it was so. You're supposed to see in the first chapter the kingly majesty of the God. But in chapter 2, what are you supposed to see? That same God who created everything and is infinitely powerful as the king of the universe, he is Yahweh, Elohim. Yahweh is the name for God of the Israelites, the personal name of God, the the holy name that they didn't even want to pronounce or say. We even have Yahweh in our scriptures here because it's not translated perfectly the way there's all kinds of stuff about how what is Yahweh really and they didn't even want to say it. They didn't even want to write it. It was too holy and sacred and set apart because it was was the personal name of the holy God. You're starting to see now? If chapter 1 explains that this God is the God who has infinite power, and when he speaks and says that it does, then this God is intimately personal, and he wants to know you and choose you and give you land. And how much more personal is chapter 2 compared to chapter 1? Notice the way God breathes into the nostrils life. I just get this image of like CPR or somebody just getting mouth-to-mouth closeness here. I don't know if that's what you're picturing, but, but certainly the idea here is, is one of a personal divine touch compared to just, well, God made humans and he made them in his image like statues. This is very different. He formed them, it says. He formed them, and the word's different than all the other created and made words. It's the word that a potter uses when he's forming clay. He's carefully crafting. Do you see what's going on here in chapter 2? Yahweh Elohim, the personal, intimate God, is the same God who is the infinite creator, King God. Now, does this have implications for you and for me? Like a thousand? So let's just take a few of them. First and foremost, some people, maybe if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you'd be like, hey, that's really cool that you guys believe in a God like that. Good for you. He's big and strong and powerful. He speaks and says, and it it does whatever he says. I'm glad that you find comfort and joy and satisfaction from that. No, no, no. If the God who created everything and owns everything and made you is also a personal God, then you need to know, is he on your side or not? This changes everything. He can't just be a God who's up in the heavens and like, oh, great, we get a lot of hope and comfort when we sing songs. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and sing, and we get joy and excitement of praising the grandeur and glory of God. If you're here today and this God is not your personal God, then he is against you, and so all this might and this power is against you because you've rejected him. You've sinned against him. So that's pretty relevant. 
That's relevant for every human that lives on the face of the earth, that the God who made every human is a personal God who knows every detail of your life, knows every hair on your head, knows every thought you've ever thought, every word you've ever spoken, and Jesus himself said you will be accountable for each of those things. So ask yourself, what is keeping you from trusting in the God of the Bible who is both infinitely powerful and intimately personal. Secondly, for those of you who are Christians and who are members of this local church, what better implication for us to think about than the personal nature of our ministry if this is the embassy of heaven? Well, let's not say the. It's probably better for us to say this is an embassy of heaven. And there's lots of them, and we want to see lots of them. But if we are to give people on a week-in and week-out basis by not just the preaching and the singing and the praying, but by our lives together, we are the church. Not Pastor Phil, not one individual person or the group of elders. We are the church. People, we are to give a picture to the nations of what God is like. So should our ministry practices be more about programs and structures or personal relationships? Or to put it another way, I could see us taking this point and saying, the God of the Bible is Yahweh Elohim. He is the God who created everything. He's big. He's strong. You should trust him for any problem, any issue. We should pray big things. We should believe in big things. But if bigness and our prayers for bigness and the expanse of the church and get the church multiplied and bigger out is at the expense of personally loving and knowing the people in the church, then that's an awful unhealthy church, isn't it? So who cares if we have all of the right programs or we have huge auditoriums or if we have multiple churches all over the place that Embassy has helped plant and start. We, we're doing big things because we got a big God. No, no, He is Yahweh Elohim. He cares about every individual person because He's a personal God. So I ask you, do you care about the fact that your elders pray for and know you by name? Is that an important factor when you're choosing and thinking about a church to attend and participate in? Or is it just one big kind of cog of ministry, an event to attend? Or does anyone here take comfort in the fact that your pastor took time this week in particular, prayed every single one of you by name. That your elders, when they gather together, make it a regular habit to take the list of people at this church and take one by one and pray one by one through every single person. Should the shepherds reflect the chief shepherd and who his character is and what his ministry is like? At Embassy Church, we're hoping that you see not just the bigness of a vision to see the glory of Jesus expand over all the face of the earth to all nations. I hope that we have prayers like that. But I also hope that we don't think lightly about the personal relationships in this church and therefore take time to invest in them. The health of Embassy, I think, will in large part be a reflection of the health of our relationships, not just our leaders, 
So you can attend small groups. We can add new small groups. We can add new Bible classes. But what if we're not loving the people in those classes and groups? What good is that? He knows us personally. He is Yahweh Elohim. The God who makes a covenant with his people, who loves his people. There's not a paradox where there is a God who is in heaven and is in control of all things and that he can't also at the same time be intimately involved with every little detail of your life. All of us in this room could pray silently to this God at the very same moment and he could hear each of us individually. Isn't that awesome to think about? That not just in this room but across the whole earth, this God is so big but at the same time so personal. He can hear every single person's prayers all at the same time and meet your needs personally. There's much more I think we could think about on this matter, but I want us to think of the third and final apparent contradiction. How do we reconcile what chapter 1 and chapter 2 says about humans? In chapter 1, we're told that we are princes and princesses. Anyone remember that from a few weeks ago? We were made in the image of God. It means that we were made to reflect His glory and we're to be made, made like His, his likeness is, is the way the language of verse 26 says. But we're also to rule and have dominion over Him. So the Elohim King is giving His creatures kingly rule. So a vice regent is the more technical term you could use. And a vice regent is like when a, let's say a, a, a king becomes a king when he's eight years old, well, he's not old enough to like rule the palace and the kingdom. So they appoint someone called a vice regent to rule until he gets old enough. God is saying that for now, you will be the vice regent. Even though you're not the king, you will rule and have dominion over the earth. It is this beautiful picture of affirming the purpose that we have here on earth. But when you get to chapter two, you see that God made us from the dust of the ground. And I don't know about you, but when I hear that, I'm not like super encouraged. Oh, so we're just a bunch of dust. That's what God thinks. Now, when you read this idea throughout the scriptures, you realize that it's not really supposed to be an encouraging and endearing term. So, for example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, the writer reflects and says, What will happen to men and what will happen to the animals? Well, when they die, they both have the same fate. Both animals and humans breathe breath, and it seems like they have no advantage over the animals. So really, everything is just vanity. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and return to the dust. Like, that's not a real uplifting thought. You and I are just a bunch of dust, and you're going to die, and you're going to return to the dust. I think that's kind of the point, is that in chapter 2, you should realize that it is not just telling you that you were made from dust and that you're a material human being, but I think it's also foreshadowing chapter 3. What does chapter 3 say over in verse 19? God's talking to Adam after they have sinned against him. And he says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. 
For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I think it's important for us to realize that in chapter 2, it is setting up for us what we're going to see very soon after chapter 2 and chapter 3, the fate of death to everyone, the curse of sin. And now imagine, get this picture in your head, all you have ever known for 40 plus years or less. Whatever it was, whenever you were born as an Israelite, and seeing one by one parents, family members, relatives, friends, dying in the wilderness, and literally turning back into dust as their bodies drop down one by one. Do you see how this image is helpful for the idea of judgment? to a group of people who have watched a whole generation of people die into dirt? So from dust you came until dust you will return. But it would be really inappropriate if we stopped there. If we just said the, the sad part of it. Do you realize that the God who made you and formed you crafted you together, breathed life into you, cares about you. He says that the breath of life that was breathed into his nostrils made the man a living creature. He gave you life. He gave you divine breath. So from dirt to divine dirt, not that you're a God, but that God has put himself in you and breathe life in you. I think for your individual life, the thing that you should be taking away is that the sweet spot for living the Christian life is to be able to have your face down on the ground in humility. You know, all through the Scriptures, they talk about fasting with uh, dust on your head, with ashes covering yourself. There is a goodness to us to be reminded about the humility that we are nothing. We are nobody. As Isaiah chapter 40 says, do you not know? Have you not been told from the beginning, from the foundations of the earth, that is God who sits above the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers? That's not like endearing or overwhelmingly encouraging. Oh, we're a bunch of grasshoppers. Cool. No, the point is that in comparison to the great God, you're nothing. You're little teeny grasshoppers. You're dust. But that God has so chosen to love and choose and put his divine breath in you that you can't stay down forever. You can't say, well, I'm nothing, and then just be depressed all the time. That's why it'd be inappropriate to stop there. You need to realize the fullness of this picture and that God has chosen a people. He's putting the man in the garden. He has chosen this man and selected him and said, look, you will be in my special place where I will dwell with you. And all through the story of Genesis and the book, first five books of Moses, you see God's choosing men, calling them out, calling Noah out, calling Abraham out, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and affirming his promise to give them this promised land. 
Wasn't this the sweet spot of Emily's testimony this morning for those of you that were at breakfast? Emily shared her life story briefly, and she said the turning point was when I felt so incredibly small and so loved all at the same time. Has that ever been you? Have you ever felt so incredibly guilty yet forgiven at the same moment? Friends, this is, I think, the sweet spot for how to grow as a Christian. And all of it comes to perfect clarity when you finish the story of Genesis 1 and 2 and you skip forward to Jesus on the cross. It's at the cross where contradictions aren't contradictions anymore. That's why they're apparent contradictions. They seem like, okay, is God an angry God who is full of wrath and indignation and justice and righteousness, and does he hate sin? Yeah. Is he a God full of abounding, steadfast love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, so much so that you're just overwhelmed with how gracious this God is? Yeah. Are we talking about paradoxes, contradictions, or do all of these apparent paradoxes come to final fruition at the cross of Jesus? This is why the cross is the center of everything. You're not going to understand how these what seem to be contradictory ideas come together unless you realize that at the cross, God's hatred for sin, being punished on Jesus, is clearly at work. Look at Jesus. And see that the God who put man in this beautiful garden, allowed by Jesus' own choice to be in a garden. And this garden was not full of life and joy. It was full of tears and sweat and blood. If Adam was placed into a garden full of life and joy and paradise, Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane to his death. And in that place, he would be led to his slaughter so that when you look at the cross, you will see God hates sin. He will punish sin. He will not just look it under the rug and say, oh, sweep it under the rug and look the other way and say, oh, it doesn't matter. No, this God deals with sin. Every single sin will be paid for. So then how do we know he loves us? God demonstrates his love for us and that while you were a sinner, Jesus Christ died for you. Look at the cross and not just see the conviction of your sin. See the flowing blood as mercy. See that judgment falling on his head. That curse, the thistles of the curse of the ground was placed on Jesus' head. That tree that was placed in the garden the tree of life that was supposed to be a symbol representing the fullness of eternal life that would go on forever and ever. Jesus hung on a tree and took on eternal death as he hung on that tree. And that breath that was breathed into that formed dust in the ground and he breathed that breath into them and they became a living creature, that breath was given to Jesus and it says as he hung on the cross, He breathed out his last. Do you, do you see what's happening here? When you read Genesis chapter 2 and you realize that God gives life to humans and that life is resembling their breath, Jesus 
was a living person who hung on a tree, not a tree of life, but a tree of death, who was in a garden leading to his death, and he hangs there and he gives his very last breath for you because this God so wonderfully loves you. So how do we as Christians not get too puffed up and stay low and humbled, bow down at the cross, bow really low, and as you're there, realize that Jesus had to die because of your sin? You'll you'll stay humble if you think about that. How do we not get so overwhelmed by our sin and our guilt that we get depressed and be like, well, what's the point anymore? I'm just a failure and a loser and I just stink at everything. You look at the cross, the very same cross that tells you that you are a sinner, that you should have been on that cross, that you died, you should have died. That same cross is screaming, it is shouting, it is telling you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You are mine, you are mine. I am Yahweh Elohim. I am the covenant God who made everything and I made you and I want to have a relationship with you. See, that's the whole story. Jesus became dead, laid down into the dust so that when you and I, when we die, we know that there's resurrection We know that there is a God who takes uninhabited, dead space and brings life just flowing out of it. And my friend, if you right now are putting your hope and your trust in Jesus, what he has done for you, then you can know that when you die, when you return to the dust, he's going to take out of the desert wasteland of whatever your body becomes a whole new living being. I hope for you and for me, that as we hear and consider these things, we will find great joy and hope in our Savior, that we will be at the sweet spot of knowing both humility before God and a confidence in who we are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to now give you thanks for this word, this message. Not the message of Pastor Phil, but the message of the Bible, the message of the word of God, that you, God, you are Yahweh Elohim. You are the covenant God, the creator, sustainer, upholder of everything by your powerful word, but at the same time, you speak that word into our hearts intimately and personally. And what are we in this room but a testimony of your grace to us that you have spoken to us. You have revealed yourself to us and changed and transformed our hearts and lives. Thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, we humble ourselves now. We we bow now down before you because we know we don't deserve any of this. How pathetic does it feel right now to say thank you? God, we want to give ourselves, our lives, our everything, because you have given everything and more than we could ever dream or imagine for us. So we pray now that that truth will keep us from ever thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought, that we would be humble. And we pray that that truth will embolden us and strengthen us to know that you are on our side and we have infinite power and infinite resources and infinite riches at our disposal at any time. 
What an amazing gift. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. We're going to now take a moment to reflect more on the cross through our next song. How marvelous, how wonderful is it that our Savior would die for us. As we sing this next song, we're going to remain seated, and the ushers will be passing the elements of the Lord's Supper by. We see in the book of Acts chapter 20 that Christians, after Jesus rose again from the dead, that on the first day of the week, Sunday, not Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, but on Sunday, the first day of the week, they would gather together, they would break bread. And it seems as if that breaking bread was a taking of the bread and the cup to remember the resurrected body of Jesus that was given for us, his life, his death, and then his resurrection. So we 